Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. I'm Morris Ardouin, co-host for the podcast Queer Voices of the South, which is found under LGBTQ Studies on the New Books Network. In this episode of Queer Voices of the South, I talked to Dr. Sherry Scott about her new book, Playhouses, Sexuality and Fundamentalism, which is released just now in February 2022 by Black Rose Writing. Here's a bit about Dr. Scott. Sherry Scott, MD, is a pediatrician who has practiced palliative and hospice care for children and general medicine. She self-published her first literary work, The Year My Mother Died, in 2011. She founded Paris Poet Society and published a juried anthology of poetry and photography called What Brings You Here? in 2016. She serves on the board of the Gendercide Awareness Project, founded in Dallas. She lives with her family in Paris, Texas. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Scott. Thank you so much. Well, it's um, oh, so pleased to be here. Great. Well, that's uh, we love to have all kinds of voices, and your book comes from the other side um, of you know your your you, this this book is unlike any of the others that I've covered, um, and so it's great to have you here. I love to hear, we love to hear you went you've gone through a lot of, uh, of a big. <laughs> A journey in this in our topic area. You've you've learned a lot on your own, but you've helped a lot of people. Other people learn as well. So we appreciate I having. Hope so. I um, hope so. I want to give a little blurb about the book. Um, it's three cousins fiercely defended their roles within the sanctity of their playhouses, but a, a six-year stint in a fundamentalist religious organization thwarted Scott's developing understanding of sexual orientation. Homosexuality was insidious, infective spirit that conferred fear upon her adolescent naivete, eventually eroding the relationship with her cousins. Playhouses is a journey from corrosive indoctrination to celebrating the differences in others. I am so glad, like I said, to have you here. We have a lot of questions to go through, but I want to first ask you, why did you write this book? Um, this was in direct response to the election results in 2016. Um, I living in a small town, of course, you're more closely connected with those around you and all kinds of circumstances where it be civics or the arts or politics, uh, churches. And I was floored that so many people had elected a person that seemed to target so many. And of all the groups I could have put picked any group. My grandchildren are Hispanic. I could have taken on the misogyny aspect, but I think it was because living in a small town, the church, the role of the church stood out to me. And so I took up the LGBTQ cause because I saw this um, institutionalized discrimination being passionately um, applauded by the evangelical sect. And so I wanted to reach out to mainstream religion in America, be that mainly mainstream Protestant and Catholic, to shed a light on how extreme extremism can be. 
Yeah. Um, well, that's a great impetus to write a book and you've done a great job having, having read this book. I think, Oh yes, I, I cheered you on as I was reading more and more. So thank you. Uh, as a member of the LGBT community, thank you. Um, what's your writing process like? Well, um, I really don't, I don't consider myself a writer or true writer. Although, um, Quoting Julia Cameron from The Artist Way, she said, did you write today? Well, you're a writer. So I, what I do almost religiously is keep up my journaling. That's something I learned from her book, you know, morning pages, three pages of drain your brain every morning. And then um, things have kind of set on a shelf here recently. So I am working on another project. And my poetry um, is something that I try to get down from time to time. Um, I do write an article highlighting some of the girls that we um, sponsor educationally in my nonprofit that I'm with, Gendercide Awareness Project. So that keeps me on a regular basis of being responsible for it. But when it's your own work, it's a little bit lately here, it's been hard. So I don't have a set time period of writing, but every once in a while I have to sit down and make myself, particularly in this last project that I'm attempting. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, all writers I've talked to have slightly different. I happen to write best in the early morning. My, mm -hmm. my brain gets used up. Um, and so if I don't do it in the morning, in the evening, if I have time to do any writing related work, it's usually editing and reading, um, stuff and finding sources and stuff like that, doing the other homework but not actually mm -hmm. writing sentences. Um, let's talk about some of the themes in your book. The first big one is the big old state of Texas. Tell us about Texas. Oh, Texas. Texas, oh, Texas. Um, <laughs> politically speaking, the reason we don't seem to make gains in Texas, it is a beast to cover. The, the dichotomy of Texas is that is a huge geographical expanse. And much of it is rural, although the majority of the population is in, of course, our major metropolitan areas. Houston is the fourth largest city in the United States. And then there's Dallas and there's Austin and El Paso and Corpus Christi and on and on it goes. These pockets of, you know, population. And why can't we make gains here? Or why are we seeing a you know, a re regression take place? And it's because for many years... Texas has been a non-voting state. So right now, um, so many vulnerable groups are under attack in Texas. And, and that's a, you know, a theme of mine that's been really highlighted to me since around 2014. So I try to take on those issues and become involved. Yeah. That's what I can say about Texas right now. I'm, I'm very disappointed in my state. Yeah, and I come from the neighboring state of Louisiana. We don't uh, get as I, I live in New York now, but I grew up. Every time I read uh, stuff from any of the southern states that are doing some proactive, negative um, rights taking exercise, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. every angle. Yeah. And Texas just lately, the governor wants to punish the parents of trans children, it's and not just the parents, but he wants to. He set out an order and, and has um, reached out to organizations such as the Teachers um, Education Association, um, Human and Health Resources, any targeting anyone who would assist um, trans children in a gender affirming any kind of treatment, whether it's counseling, whether it's um, 
you know, medication. I mean, this is targeting like the um, medical schools and their right. academic branches that serve these children. Yeah. Yeah. It's sinister. Um, Florida's doing it the is. same thing. Florida's doing exactly the same thing right now, trying to get rid of um, any kind of information sharing about the entire culture. Like, it, well, we, we can erase this whole culture if we don't talk about it. <laughs> uh, no, you can't. <laughs> no, you won't. <laughs> if, right. if we have anything to do with it. So um, great. Keep fighting. Um, I have another because um, we have to keep moving. I have I want you to talk about the great story that you're writing. And that that's about you and your cousins. And it's so enchanting. To, to read. So I want to share with the audience so they're more enticed to get that book. You know, I in, in speaking of difficult issues such as this and trying to bring other people on board with understanding relational, I think writing or relational speaking helps. And so I went back to really the bedrock of understanding sexual orientation and gender identity started with my cousins. And the playhouse is in reference to those early years, those early um, formative years when we were the closest of friends, even though we are geographically or separated for, for much of the time of our childhood. But those times when we are together were so special. And so it's really a book that moves from a state of innocence to bias to recovery. And so um, we are the three granddaughters of, uh, and it's, these are paternal grandparents that were referenced. Um, my grandparents, Burl and Opal Shields, they had four grandchildren. And one was my older brother, 12 years older than me, who, by the way, just passed away this past week. Oh, wow. And the, the three uh, granddaughters, and this was myself being the oldest, and my cousin Diana followed three months behind me. And then the her sister, Karen, followed three years. And so it was this trio of our times together. And basically who we were and who we've continued to be. And I talk about the sanctity of our playhouses where we were allowed to be who we were. And no one thought any different, particularly the three of us. And so that's when that's where I when I struggled and when I was becoming more open to dishing or ridding myself of this indoctrination. Um, that's that's the bedrock that I went back to the, our formative years together. Yeah. Well, it comes across beautifully because it's so sweet. I mean, you, you, you have, you play in those playhouses, you, you assign each, uh, roles for each other. There's a, there's a lot of learning right there and never changed. Those roles yeah. never changed. Yeah. Um, so I found that very touching. Um, and that's where you had your first intimate experiences um, with your cousins, learning how to uh, just how to be a human. Um, and so you write about that component and then you get into the world of religion. Tell us about mm -hmm. that. That was a big detour for me that, um, started very innocent. Like I was invited to a Sunday night service with some neighborhood friends who I'm still friends with. And, um, because our church, my church didn't have a nighttime service, a Sunday night service. So I was raised in a very, Protestant, you know, Presbyterian home, very common sense parents, open parents, open-minded parents. And um, I began attending a Pentecostal church and that really took hold. And it became more, eventually more than Sunday night services. Then I added Sunday morning services. Then it was Wednesday night services. Then it was bus ministry until I was really, this was my niche. This was my my newfounded 
church group and of course really involved in the youth um you know not we didn't call it youth group yeah youth group you know my best friends and 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 it, there were some good experiences there but in in being in such an indoctrinating a really narrow-minded cult-like um, at church, it, it emotionally, psychologically, and spiritually separated me from my family and from childhood friends that I had gone up around. It, it really encased me. And in doing so, it disrupted some of the relationships that were so natural to me in my childhood. Yeah, I, that comes across. It must have been so difficult on both sides, on your side and on the, uh, your other family member's side. Tell us about what you think they mm-hmm. were going through when they saw you becoming this other person. My mother was very understanding. She's an open-minded person. Um, my parents are both deceased. But mother was always, um, even though both of my parents only had high school education, you know, they, um, they, they, were, they were read, they were readers, my mother was much more open-minded than probably even more so than my father, but they both supported my own individual faith journey and that they had left their both prospective church houses in order to marry because they were, you know, each individual church house of their own had um, required them to be rebaptized when they were remarried. So they left those, those, those church houses to um, make their own way, you know, find their own church, find their own path. So in that respect, they were very understanding, but, um, I'm sure it was hard because these were my adolescent, you know, beginning of my adolescent years from my sixth grade up through high school. Um, and I really owe a lot to them because they gave me such a foundation to come back to at some point where so many children or so many people, I should say, raised throughout childhood in some of these um, cult-like churches or, or religious, you know, indoctrination, uh, long-standing, have a much harder time. Yeah, um, I, 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 I was fortunate I didn't go through anything like that, but I, I could relate. I know people like you um, that I that I knew also from that period of my life going, okay, they are of their own. They, they do not want to be part of who we are. And I saw that from the outside and you saw it from the inside. Sure. Uh, and that must have been gut-wrenching, but at the same time, your parents must have felt that you were safe. You know, that's um, probably a big I'm piece sure. of it that they were, this was wholesome. Yeah, um, I protected them from that. They they did not, you know, as I became increasingly involved and my time was spent more and more at church, when things got increased, more intense, the prayer sessions I protected my parents from that because I was responsible for their salvation. Remember, I was in the narrow way. I was the one that was in the true way, and I was responsible for all those around me, their salvation. So when things got intense and I felt like I was being um, under the microscope, per se, for uh, being out of whack, that's what it was called. You know, I wasn't prayed up and I allowed sin to enter my life, which maybe thought processes or, you know, an, an evil spirit in these prayer sessions took hold, which were very radical, prolonged, and, and psychologically damaging. I, I protected my parents from that, but there came a point where I could no longer do that. So everything kind of came to a head. Yeah. Um, you're just, uh, the church uh, 
makes you feel guilty by association. That's a big piece of it. Just because you have uh, someone, and and that is, um, that must be such a, a conflict um, because, like, you loved your cousins, and that kept that. Like you said, this was a core of why you wrote this book. I, you had to, you you wanted them in your life, even though they weren't always around. They they moved around, but still, you that rich upbringing that childhood of yours was uh, that that's never going to leave you and yet this uh the fundamental religious experience which was extremely intense you not only it not only left you you left it and we can get to that later when i we get down to the place where you kind of have an awakening and you start you start breaking away you go back to the the parsonage and um you talk to the leaders there and um there is kind of a a uh, uh, coming to Jesus moment, so to speak. Um, <laughs> but before we talk about that, let's talk about what they t- what they started teaching you about um, uh, uh, indoctrinating you with homophobia and making making you really really believe that all of that was a an illness and uh, to be ostracized. Um, I think but- it was very subtle because as I got in when I first entered the church, this was you have to understand. I come from a pen. Presbyterian background, okay, so it's a very structured type worship format. I come into the Pentecostal church, and it's very, you know, the, the word charismatic is overused a lot, but it is a different worship style. It's a different experience, and so even the um, validation of being saved, salvation, is a tangible. It's, a, it's something that can be observed. Okay, it's in that church that I was in, and within the Pentecostal faith, it is the outward hearing observation of speaking tongues. It is a particular baptism. Um, they're, they're very strict on that. And it's a, it is a lifestyle that's totally different from people on the outside. And it, you know, outward expression, but also inward worship. Okay. So um, that begins. And, and I find this great uplifting, you know, I, I immerse myself into that. But as time goes on, it becomes more insidious of what is being our youth group is being drugged through what the separations and divisions in the church happen. And all this undertow happens to be around the subject of LGBTQ, which back then was just homosexuality. Yeah. And it's something if you're, a, if you're a growing adolescent, these are things, you know, your own sexuality is not clear to you at that point. We're in a very stringent you know, environment. We don't go to dances. We don't go to football games. We're not allowed to show our shoulders. Our dresses are down to our kneecaps. This is in the seventies. So, you know, it's, it's a very narrowed way of life. And then this keeps thrown out. And so it becomes, it's more of an evil spirit. That's what, if you're not prayed up, you're leaving yourself open to the influence of others. And so it becomes this really paranoia, almost witch hunt, um, the exercise that begins to happen in the church. Unlike when we hear of modern day churches, I'm just going to say the most obvious, the Westboro Baptist, that Baptist church that is known for its notorious um, attacks on different entities. This was within the church walls. And so it, it was more of a, who's going to be next? Who's targeted? Yeah. It, it's more sinister. It's, a, it's, it it's, did. It was, it's, it's a whisper campaign. Yeah, it it feels like it was very intentional though, and somebody designed it <laughs> because and it happens within our formative years. Yeah. So you know this is from the time I was twelve to eighteen, but it really started ramping up more in my high school years. And these are the years when you're still trying to figure out your own 
sexuality. You haven't even kissed a boy per se. Yeah, that kind yeah. of, you know. And and you coincidentally mentioned it's the seventies. I grew up in the same time, and seventies um, uh-huh. were amazing. If you missed it, because you couldn't go to dances, you couldn't go to football games, well, the mu- music, the clothes, uh, all of that. You if you were you couldn't have that. That must have been so so uh, frustrating. You know, it really, we didn't miss it because our youth group, you know, if you're anything in a Pentecostal church, one thing it's about is about music. So the secular music, as we called, was still playing in our cars. And, you know, the 70s, a, a pastime was driving around. If you remember that, you packed yes. as many people as you could in a car and you turned up either your FM radio or you had your 8-track, right? Yeah. And music was very much, so I didn't miss that aspect of it. Um, we had um, kids in our church because we had a very active youth group. They were they were an example for good dressers, even though we were modest. We did have a flair for fashion, so you, you borrowed as much as you could from the fashion around you. Of course, I couldn't wear, you know, hip huggers and, and low slung, you know, bell bottoms and stuff. But you did borrow from that culture. Um, no, there was no. You know, there was no going to concerts unless they were Christian based or, um, like I said, the dances. But on our own, we did. We still enjoyed the seventies. I'll say that. Good. Well, that makes me feel better because <laughs> I when I talk to people now younger than me, I said, you, if you weren't, you didn't get to experience the seventies. There are a lot of decades that are kind of fun and memorable and sweet, but the seventies were so much so distinctive. Oh, yeah. So distinctive. The music. Oh, yeah. yeah. The music. Yeah. And it was coming from all directions, interiors, the colors, um, things that were in vogue mm-hmm. were just, you know, they were, it was just, you would think the buttoned up 50s going into the <laughs> rebellious 60s, that the 70s would have been an afterthought. No, the 70s took that and actually ran with it. Because, I, I believe Yeah, so um, let's get into now your, your um, the book goes into, it's around uh, middle of the way, chapter 20, I guess, a little bit more, um, that you, you have to leap a few years ahead. You've grown up um, and you have taken a lot of that indoctrination, um, but just naturally with you, but because you, you still had that residue, um, but you were growing up, you got married, you started a family. And then there's a point in, in this chapter where you go back to the parsonage. You have you're, you're experiencing depression. Tell us uh-huh. about that. That was a that's a thing. phone call. That's a phone call that happens. Um, my exodus from the church was pretty abrupt. Um, it, it was a matter of I was not so much politely asked to leave, but it came apparent I was wanting out because I was you know uh, uh, an influence on other kids in the church, which you know was not true. It was just a state of thinking differently so there was there's a 20 year there's a 20 year span between the time i exit abruptly to where i'm in a point of major depression and all of that from the church comes back and what it is is the impending doom right it's your it's your um surely you're going to face hell it's it's that that bottomed out experience you have and so in a state of just anxiety, painful anxiety. I reach out. It's a phone call to the parsonage, like you said, and the pastor picks up the, the phone. And where it's very powerful because where I expect condemnation, I don't get it. Um, so for me, that was a closure between he and I. Now, my major depression raged on, but it was a sense of closure. And then later on, I reach back out in this painful anxiety causes me to pick up the phone again and I get 
his wife, which um, was one of the scarier figures in the church at that point. She wielded a lot of power. And these both were our spiritual mentors. That's who we looked up to. But she was very protective of her daughter, which I was a best friend to. So again, um, it was a very powerful um, conversation because she goes on to share with me how she had been in a state of depression when the church was being attacked and um, was about, I did not not go on medication, although it wouldn't have been probably better for me if I had. She didn't know it, but at the time she was giving me a sense of permission to take medication, which I had fought because yeah. I felt like this was a spiritual battle. And so that call was kind of closure for me and these two individuals. So that, that was a good um, point to resolve that conflict and coming out of my major depression, uh, there was a clean slate. There was yeah. no more a sense of I'm going to hell and everyone that I know my family, my friends, and everyone I see around me is going to hell. That was that was kind of a, you know, a wiping of the slate clean, yeah. so to speak. Yeah, you feel that as a reader that because um, you did that chapter so beautifully, it's like uh, the the cloud lifted, um, and you had you had that cloud over you all those years, needlessly. It really, did. but you had it. Really it. You, you did not let go of that um, until yeah. that time, and then your mother passed away, and then you began to even do more growth, personal growth. Talk about that. Um, my mother died when I was 48. So there was a lot going on. We've just had a recent move. I'm in a, um, I'm not practicing medicine at the time. Um, this was a, it was a complicated course after open heart surgery that took her unexpectedly from us or suddenly from us, I should say. Um, and it hits around the time of, you know, it's middle age crisis, so to speak. And so I was really starting to act out and wanting to escape. And of course, I had at that point in my life, um, a husband and three children, the youngest one being around the age of four and um, really wanting to escape and move on. And, and then I start this obsessive phase with the music of Todd Rundgren. When we talk about the 70s, he was yeah. your glam rock artist in the 70s who um, just this year has received his initiation into the Rock Hall of Fame, I believe it is. And I start this obsession and um, I can't make sense of it. And so then I discover, and I've mentioned her before, the artist way, Julia Cameron, and I begin to uh, try to branch out creatively. And go back to the roots of what my mother had instilled in me and then what she did not ever have the opportunity to enjoy, which was ballet lessons, which was piano lessons. And I realized all those years in the church, I still had to flush out. I still had to flush out all that was lost because I'm an observant child. And so I always had an imagination. And I think that's why I write. And I had to, all those that had been lost, I had to face it again and then try to move on from there in creative expression. And so then I get involved things like community theater and I start writing and I start writing poetry. So that was still a, another freeing moment for me. And it wasn't because my mother ever held me back. It was a matter of trying, now I'm at a point where I need to reclaim what my mother wanted for me, what she saw in me. Yeah. 
Yeah, it was a turning point. Um, and you began to write poetry, or you picked up poetry again. You may have written it early. I don't remember, but you poetry became a very important part of your creation, your creativity. Uh huh. And you since went on and started these this organization that's mentioned in your 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 um, bio. But tell us about how poetry helped you. Poetry. How how writing poetry because you're you're a writer of all of various forms and so that's a specific form. You know, it began to spill out of me, and I can't remember why. And I think it was these exercises that I had to do in the book. And so one day I'm staring out through my kitchen window, and it's a matter of of if you listen, you listen, and you the words come. It's like the words want to be written. So I'm going to try this exercise. So I'm looking out my kitchen window at the neighbor's house across the street and there's rain coming down on the roof. In fact, I think I titled this poem the first one. And I began to almost try to dictate what the words are in my head. Mm -hmm. And that became the start of my poetry. And so many times then I began to, to be aware of my surroundings. And that was one of the most um, prolific phases of writing poetry was when I began to pay more attention to surroundings and to be, listen to the words that would come and just write them down on a piece of paper and then eventually led to, you know, online writing to where I could actually see. And now it's almost, I think of it as word dough where I can play with it. And, and it was easy to mobilize, move it around, so to speak. But what, I think what really began to um, encourage me or solidify that more is when I started attending you know, there's a poetry festival I would go to every year. I became around poets that were published. So I have yet to have a work of poetry published per se, just my book, but it's, it's always, it's out there. It's a goal for me still something I, my poetry is very special to me. I think of it as my children, so to speak. And so they're there, they're tucked away in folders. And yeah, I find I write poetry sometimes too. And it's, it's, it's a, a medium that does something for your spirit that no other write, writing or artistic medium does. Maybe music, maybe yeah. writing music is very similar as far as yeah, song, could, songwriting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if we could put it, music would be another Bob Dylan, wouldn't we? So that's the yeah, <laughs> that's, you uh, know, the Johnny Mitchell, that type of thing. Yeah. So I get it. You started a, a poet society in uh, your uh, town, um, and it's. Um, it's an important. It's, it's an important piece. Um, do you, do you do you write it now? Are you still writing poetry? I do write poetry. It's much more sparse, and many times I got to tell you, a, po- a poem comes to head, comes in my mind, and I and I go through it, and I'm just not as writing it down as frequently. I'm thinking in rhyme, but I'm not putting the rhyme down on the page as much. And I I go through periods where every once in a while I have to sit down and put it down because it's such a validating experience when I do and I miss it when I don't yeah so it, it really is an outlet to express yourself like no other like I said it really there's I, I when I do it I really do exactly what you say I feel so much uh, uh, cathartic a release um, after I get a, a release. Yes. Yeah, yeah and I, that's why I love it I don't I don't do it as much either um, but I, you know I do exactly what you do though I try to think when I look at stuff and I observe things and I mm-hmm. use that when I'm um, 
talking about um, writer's block. Uh, you know, it comes up as a common question for writers. And I don't get writer's block. What happens is I look out the window and I start writing what I see, just like a poet would do. And I start putting those things down, if it's physical things. And I start feeling like, oh, I see wind. I feel the wind. It's happening. The house is rumbling. You know, you get that going. And then you're writing machine comes back on <laughs> so i've never had writing block um writer's block but uh and it's because i think uh poetry um so um anyway um i we don't have a whole lot of time but i want to ask you uh, you mentioned your activism um and um i could feel the passion when you're talking about that um what what's next what are you doing as far as um you know what where i know you mentioned texas um and there's so many things right now. We have a horrible war brewing, uh, and ah. so many distractions. Uh, we just just if 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 the world would just calm down a little bit. Um, and, <laughs> but there, there seems to be a march of a lot of states against LGBTQ rights. Very systematic. Um, in fact, as a, a married gay person, um, when the marriage laws came, I, I couldn't. I didn't want to trust it um, because all our lives as LGBTQ people. Mm-hmm we didn't have marriage as part of our emotional vocabulary. We, we, it wasn't allowed. So it didn't, you didn't need to entertain that. You did it in a, in a, in a, uh, in a kind of a, um, joking way. You would have, we'd have these marriages that were part of a party or something. And you would joke about it. That's my husband before he really was your, could ever be your husband. And I never thought it would come to pass. And when it did, I, I didn't, I didn't trust it. And here we're in a time right now where my suspicion is, is it looks like there are people chipping away at that's what they want to do they want to undo the rights we do have so i applaud you and we need people like you um you know and and because we have to be activisms activists for ourselves but when we get people who are who are advocates like you um allies um it that's what helps move the needle so um, I want to just convey our appreciation for you and, and people who do what you do like you. Um, and, and again, because of time, I wish we could continue talking. I want to ask your advice. Um, I want to ask what advice you have for, for children um, who are going through some of the things you went through and some of your cousins went through and your advice in, in broad strokes in general for uh, people who are um, looking at this and may, may go, oh, wow, um, that's not how I, I was thinking about it. What do you think? What, what, what do you want to tell people? Oh, you know, I, um, you mean speaking to those from the LGBT community children, or children who are confused about the messages they're receiving or what up and through adolescence? Yes, um, there's a lot of influences like you went through that are external to your who you are, but you're in it like the fundamental fundamentalism. But also, if you're an LGBTQ kid out there, you you know them. You've you've grown up with that world, and now you're part of helping support that world. Um, uh, there are so many kids that are again, like the state of Texas, is trying to legislate against um, trans children and, right. and, and making right. it kind of make it you know to be illegal to be <laughs> like that's I'm, I'm 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 laughing at how horribly absurd it is, um, but. Yeah. But it's really happening. Um, so I just wanted to get your thoughts and leave our listeners with some thoughts about you could be on any side of this and you can pick the sides. You can go down the line if you want, but um, leave us with some give, make us feel good. <laughs> we, I want some optimism. I would hope that there are and there are 
even in my little conservative town, if you want to call it, I can't stand the labels conservative and liberal because I think they're so generalized that they don't, they miss so much. But let's take a, you know, there's a term in Texas. Anytime you move east, you turn back time. So let's say I'm in a town that struggles with this, this, um, you know, has a hesitancy toward progressing because of the fear and paranoia that's labeled with it. But even in these settings, there are people that you can trust, um, a counselor at your school, teachers. There are te- there are open-minded people, even in these pockets where, you know, it's, it's a backwards way of thinking and it's pushed. Um, your parents, your siblings. And, you know, so much now social media for kids is so much more open. This is... Um, there's a lot of open expression, yeah. but finding those adults that you can trust, that you can discuss with someone that you can trust is, is where I would point children. Um, and I'd like to be a part of that group where someone could trust me and come to me. And there's so many advocates that are out there. It's just a matter of being judicious and seeking them out and, you know, the books now, the, the book banning that's trying to be introduced at these schools, I would point you to public libraries. Those are some of the safest places, even in my little community. Yes. That really do their their job at remaining open to all. A library is a very safe place. It's, it's free. They have public restrooms, yeah. they have water fountains, and they have yeah. material for all. Those yeah. are those are safe harbors. Um and, and don't be afraid to question it's so much, and particularly in kids where being brought up maybe in a house of worship that is very close-minded, but they're forced to go. Um, seek out those adults that you can question, that you, and don't be afraid to question. And even if you have to question on your own and share it with your friends that you trust, um, that was one thing. That's, that's a red flag when you're told not to question. It's of the devil if you question. I don't know how many times that was told to me. Yeah. And um, I had a source within my own house I could have gone to, but like I, I, I said, I was trying to protect them. I was responsible for them. So it can be a scary place. Find those adults or peers that you can trust and, and ask questions, and then don't be afraid to open a book and read on your own. Yeah, great advice. Thank you. Um, thank you so much. That's, that's a good place for us to stop um, today. Sherry, thank you so much for, for taking the time and being here. Um, it's been a really great conversation, and there's so much in the book. I urge people to get get the book. It's brand new. Um, it's called Playhouses, Sexuality, and Fundamentalism. It's published by Black Rose Writing. Um, and if you have any uh, idea out there for an episode, a future episode of Queer Voices of the South, please send them to us, uh, Queer Voices of the South, all spelled out at gmail.com. We love new ideas for, for uh, uh, new books, fresh books. Fresh being within a year or so, we happen to have one today that is right, we're right in the moment as it's being <laughs> launched. So this book is brand new. Um, so you haven't had time to get out to maybe find a physical book yet, but you're, soon it will be there. Um, and I'm guessing that, um, Typically, uh, having uh, put a book out myself, um, the the typical places, the strong places for getting this book, of course, the big ones, Amazon and Barnes and Noble, who sell the books, and um, and also, but I want to mention Indie Indie Press, Indie. Um, what, what is it? Um, 
it's where all the indie press uh, books go. If you want to support your locals, your independent writers, if I, if I, I, I I'm drawing a blank what that's called, but um, the uh, look for ind- Google independent uh, book <laughs> suppliers. And if you can't get your book from there, because you're doing a double a good, you're buying a great book, but you're also helping a small um, uh, bookseller. That's not one of and the also giants. Through Black Rose, I think through Black Rose Writing, you can go on their website as well. And oh, right. You're right. Uh, yes, mm-hmm. the publisher. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So thanks for that. Um, and that's about it. Sherry, you have any more um, thoughts before we sign off? I want to thank you so much for having me on. This is a great opportunity. I wish I could do more. Um, I will continue to do my part, but um, I'm with you. And thank you so much. Well, thank you. It's um, it's been great talking with you. Um, join us again, everybody, next time on Queer Voices of the South, so that your let your own queer Southern voice be heard. It's important, like Sherry said, seek out. Don't be afraid to ask. Um, and this is and this is this podcast is one of those safe places. <laughs> so thank you, everybody. Bye bye. <laughs>